Father, we are glad to be together as a church again on this Lord's Day. What a joy it is for us to worship our Savior who gave Himself for us, to rescue us from this present evil age, our Savior who was then raised from the dead, who is now exalted in heaven interceding for us, pleading our innocence before the throne of God. What a great joy it is to know such a Savior and to worship such a risen King. We're getting close to election day and we're reminded now that uh, no matter who is elected as president, no matter who is in office, Christ is on the throne. Christ is King. He reigns and rules supremely. And for that we're grateful. We're grateful that all of human history is being moved towards a goal, all for the glory of God. And no matter what happens uh, in politics, no matter what happens uh, in our world, in our culture, in our country, Jesus is Lord and His purposes will not be thwarted. And we rejoice in that. So now as we gather as a church to study uh, this wonderful confession that has so many wonderful theological foundational truths for us to consider as a church, I pray that you would help us to accurately understand your word, help us to discern truth from error, help us to hold fast to that which is good and to hate that which is evil, and to pursue obedience to you because we love you, the one who's loved us. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. Alright, well if you have your copy of the Confession, you can go ahead and turn to page 11. Page 11. And uh, we will pick up with chapter 1. Chapter 1. And uh, not surprisingly, we've only made it through one paragraph so far. But I do think we'll get through at least three or four paragraphs, if not more, today. So, chapter 1, and we'll be picking up with paragraph 2. Before we uh, read paragraph 2, who can kind of... Give me a summary of what we looked at in paragraph 1. How would you describe uh, what we talked about in that first paragraph? Sufficiency of the Scripture. Sufficiency of the Scripture, okay. So the Word of God is sufficient. What else? What do we close the paragraph talking about? We looked at the sufficiency of Scripture. We also talked about the necessity of Scripture. So we need Scripture. We have to have Scripture. And why do we have to have Scripture? Can't we be saved without the Bible? Can't we be saved without the Gospel? The Lord's revelation is in Scripture. The Lord's revelation is in Scripture, right? God's former ways of revealing Himself through visions and dreams and prophecies have now ceased. We have the Bible. The Bible alone now contains for us God's salvific revelation. And the only way for us to be saved is to hear divine revelation, right? We know God through creation. We know God's law through conscience, through general revelation. But we cannot know God's will for salvation without the Bible, without the gospel and inscripturated revelation. So now we come to paragraph 2. And in paragraphs 2 and 3, we're going to now see the extent of Scripture. The extent of Scripture. And that is to answer the question, what books belong in the Bible? What books belong in the Bible? Uh, who, who in here knows, if you have any, any background with Roman Catholic theology at all, who in here realizes that our Protestant Bibles only contain 66 books, but there are other books in some other Bibles? Definitely. Right? Have you ever wondered why that's the case? <laughs> she said, no, I don't care. Because the other parts aren't divinely inspired by God. The other to parts aren't. Their doctrine. 
That's there. No. Very good point. If you, if you can't prove your doctrine from the actual Bible, then you add extra books and you make it up, right? The Mormons did that. And the Catholics did that in, in a different way. So we're going to talk about the extent of Scripture. What books belong in the Bible and why? And I want us each to leave here this morning with confidence in the 66 books of our Protestant Bible. So let's look at paragraph 2. Very uh, short paragraph. And, and, well, I guess it's not very short if you consider the, the books that it lists here. But it reads like this. The Holy Scriptures, or the Word of God written, consist of all the books of the Old and New Testaments. These are, and then it goes on to list the books. So the Word of God written consists of these books, and it's broken into two testaments. Who in here knows what the word testament means? Covenant. Covenant, basically. So essentially there are two covenants, two overarching covenants throughout the history of the world. Uh, there's a first covenant that was made initially in the garden with Adam, the covenant of works or law. It was reiterated to the Israelites in Exodus 20 in what we call the Mosaic Covenant. But then with the coming of Jesus and the inauguration of the New Covenant, the Old Covenant passes away. And so the Old Testament chronicles the Old Covenant, the history of the Old Covenant. The New Testament chronicles the history of the New Covenant. And now the books that are contained in them are as follows. The Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Bible written by... Who wrote the first five books? Moses. Moses. Well, what are some names that we use for the first five books? Pentateuch. Pentateuch. What does the Pentateuch mean? Five books. Very simple, right? It just means five books. So we call it the Pentateuch. What are some other names we've given to the first five books? It's a T word. Torah. Torah. Torah, which just means law, right? So the Pentateuch, the Torah, the, the law of Moses, the books of Moses. Then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. What, what might we call these books? Historical. Historical books. Chronicles, some history of Israel. Then we get to uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and my personal favorite, the Song of Solomon. Everybody loves the R-rated Song of Solomon. What might we call those books? Poetry, right? The poetic books. And then finally we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Zechariah, and Malachi. What do we call those books? Prophets. The prophets. The prophets are broken into two categories. Who knows? The big prophets. Major. Well, That's true. What did you say? Major and minor. Big, little, major, minor, right? And does anyone know why they're called major and minor? The length of the books. The length of the books, right? <clears throat> so the major prophets are primarily longer than the minor prophets. Very simple, right? So you hit the Pentateuch, historical books, poetic books, and the prophetic books. Then in the New Testament, a lot simpler, right? We just love our New Testaments, right? I do. The New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what do we call that? The Gospels, right? And then Acts, all those, those five, first five books are historical narrative, basically. Then you have Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. The epistles, right? The epistles. How many people know the various genres that make up the book of Revelation? Is, there, is Revelation an epistle? Not a <clears throat> Remember, seven letters to seven churches, right? That's the way it's written. But is it more than just epistle? 
It's also prophetic and apocalyptic, right? It has symbolism in it. It predicts future events and so forth. So the book of Revelation is unique. It has like three genres in one. Very unique book. That's why we avoid it, right? No, not really. All right. So that's uh, the Old and New Testaments. And then that final statement at the end of paragraph 2. See, we're moving fast this morning, aren't we? The final statement is all of these are given by the inspiration of God to be the standard of faith and life. Now, who remembers what the word inspiration means? God breathed, right? Theonustos. Two words, theos, God, pneuma, breath. God breathed. So God breathed out the words and they were recorded by the human authors in Scripture. And 2 Timothy 3.16 is the footnote. We've already looked at that verse. We don't need to look at that again. Alright, so you'll notice as you looked at that list of books in paragraph 2, they correspond exactly with our Bible today, right? Nothing added, nothing taken away. But paragraph 3 now, if paragraph 2 was a positive statement of what belongs in the Bible, paragraph 3 is a negative statement of what does not belong in the Bible. And uh, what do we call the books that don't belong in the Bible? The Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. Paragraph 3 says, The books commonly called the Apocrypha were not given by divine inspiration and so are not part of the canon or standard of the Scriptures. Therefore, they have no authority for the church of God and are not to be recognized or used in any way different from other human writings. So according to the confession, can we read the Apocrypha? Sure. Sure. You can read Moby Dick. You can read whatever you want. But can we use the Apocrypha as our standard for faith and life? No. The Bible is. The Apocrypha is not the Bible. Now that brings us to a question then. Why do we not accept the Apocrypha as Scripture? What do you think? The Catholic Church has it in their Bible. Many Protestant Bibles have contained it ever since the 4th century or so. So why do we not accept the Apocrypha as divinely inspired? Was that part of the Jewish Torah? Or, or not Torah, Canaan. but their whole section of... The Tanakh the is what they called it. Right, very good. The Jews did not accept the Apocrypha. And that's important because Jesus affirmed the Jewish canon. Let's look up two verses. They're actually both listed here for us. The first one there is Luke 24, 27 and 44. We'll look at those. So Carol made a very good point. The Jews did not accept the Apocrypha. Luke 24, verse 27. And here we read the words of our Lord. This is post-resurrection. Jesus is trying to convince the disciples that what's happened... And the resurrection is just what the Bible taught was going to happen. And he says this, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then go to uh, verse 44. Verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Now, who in here knows what the Jewish canon... How many parts did the Jewish canon have? Three, okay? There was a threefold division of the Jewish canon. That's why they call it the Tanakh. The, the three parts of that mean basically the law, the prophets, and the writings. The writings would have included the Psalms and the poetic books and things like that. So you have a threefold division. Jesus affirms that threefold Jewish canon right here. He says... All that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms is probably a reference to the writings, since the Psalms would be the first book there. So Jesus affirms the Jewish threefold canon. Jesus was an actual Orthodox Jew. Most of the Jews weren't, but He was. He believed the truth. He accepted the Jewish canon, not the Apocrypha. He doesn't say, all that's written about me in the Law, the Prophets, the Writings, and the Apocrypha have to be fulfilled. He says the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The Jews did not accept the canon. Or the, uh, the Apocrypha. And then if you look, there's one more verse to go to. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> Perhaps you say, why does it matter what the Jews accepted? Well, here's why. Romans chapter 3, verse 2. We'll actually start in verse 1. Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. So there, there is a, a benefit to being a Jew. Here's what it is. First of all, now primarily, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? The words of God. Scripture, the Bible. The Jews were given the Word of God. And the Jews did not acknowledge the Apocrypha as being the Word of God. Jesus did not acknowledge the Apocrypha as being the Word of God. And therefore, as a Christian church, we should not accept the Apocrypha as the Word of God. So that's, that's a reason. Because of the Jews and because of Jesus, we should reject the Apocrypha. What are some other reasons to reject the Apocrypha? There's at least a few more. Conflict with other things in the Scripture. Very good. The Apocrypha contradicts the Bible. So, there's, th there's a few options. Number one, the whole Bible is just wrong. Throw it away because it contradicts itself if the Apocrypha belongs in there. Or number two, the Apocrypha doesn't belong in the Bible because the Bible is the Word of God and the Apocrypha is not. And that's obviously the logical conclusion. <clears throat> the Apocrypha teaches several things that are contrary with Christian theology. Uh, one of the things is that you can be saved by giving money to the poor. That's what the Apocrypha teaches, very clearly. That fits in right with Roman Catholic theology where it's a system of merit. You're saved by grace plus what you do and you've got to do good works and earn time out of purgatory and do acts of penance for committing uh, mortal sins and so forth. And so the Apocrypha is consistent with Roman Catholic dogma, but the Bible is not. Uh, another, Obviously the Apocrypha teaches purgatory. That's where they get the idea of the Apocrypha, not the Bible. So those are two reasons to reject the Apocrypha. Because Jesus and the Jews did. Because the Apocrypha contradicts the Bible. What are some other reasons? <clears throat> There's questionability of who and when they were written. You're killing it, Carol. you got a ball. <laughs> We've got one point left. Carol's got three out of four so far. So the Apocrypha is what we call pseudepigrapha books. They're books written by people who forged false names. Uh, so, for instance, the book of Enoch is one of the books that's considered apocryphal. And uh, the book of Enoch is not written by Enoch. Enoch died 
way before the Book of Enoch was written. The Book of Enoch was written, most of the apocryphal books were written in what we call the intertestamental period. That is the time in between the Old and New Testaments, from about 450 uh, B.C. to about 680. Uh, and so all, almost all of the apocryphal books were written in that period. By men, we don't even know who they are. They forged false names. There's just no reason to trust these books. Why do you think they would have forged false names? Give us some authority, right? Because they knew they were bogus. So how do I get a, some sort of validation? Oh, I say Enoch wrote the book, right? And so you end up with pseudepigraphal books, books forged in false names. So, you know, another reason, I'll let you guys try to guess. Okay, that was three out of four. So first of all, because of pseudepigrapha, they're forged with other names, written in between the Testaments. Secondly, Jesus and the Jews rejected it. Thirdly, uh, contradicts past revelation. One more reason. Why should we reject the Apocrypha? <coughs> Carol's all out of tricks in her bag. <coughs> Is the Apocrypha ever quoted as authoritative in the Bible? No. no. Almost every book of the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. I think every book except for like one or two. The Apocrypha is never quoted in the New Testament because the Apocrypha is not the Word of God. So that's four good reasons to reject the Apocrypha. They're very conclusive for me. Very conclusive. They were written by four uh, false, na false people who forged <coughs> other names. Jesus and the Jews rejected it. Never quoted in the Scripture. Contradicts past revelation. That's the end of the story for me. So the Apocrypha does not belong in the Word of God. You can use them as other human writings, but do not use them as divinely inspired Scripture, for they are not. So that's the extent of Scripture. Stated positively, it's the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. Stated negatively, it's uh, not the Apocrypha. Now, there's a word that uh, you may hear sometimes. It's the word canon. Canon. Does anyone know what the word canon means? Has anyone in here ever heard of that word? Okay, so we talk about the canon being closed or you know what the canon is. I know what it I kinda know what it means with or I know what it means with regards to the Bible, but I don't have a good definition for it. Sure. But I also know what it means in regards to fictional works that, that, that have nothing to do with this. Because there's a separate term So how is it used in fiction? Um, in fiction it's used to mean like what is true for the, the, the world, the fake world or whatever, like like the story goes too far from what is established, what or it's what has been established usually by like the first author or the main like line of books or movies or whatever. Good, I think that's very consistent with how it's used here. So the word it comes from it referred to a um, a reed, a big stick that was used to measure something. Okay, so it was used to measure, so it came to denote the measure of something, the standard, right? So you can't deviate from the standard. Here's the standard. So the canon of the Scripture refers to the standard of our faith, the measure of our faith. And what is, what is our canon? It's the Bible, right? So the canon is a reference to the collection of writings that belong in the Bible, in the Word of God. So it's the standard. Is that kind of how it's used then? Yeah, the standard I, of something? I guess. It, it's a little different because things... Because... Uh, um, it's a little different because it's fiction and it doesn't matter as much. So things will get sure. like on, on and re or whatever. Like declares yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is infinitely more important, but oh, yeah. some similarities. Good. Good. So the canon is a reference to the uh, standard of our faith. <clears throat> now, there are several tests <clears throat> that any book has to pass to be considered scripture. Uh, we call them the test of canonicity. Who in here knows 
or, or can kind of guess what some of those tests might be. <clears throat> what are some tests that any book has to pass if it's going to belong in the Bible? If it if a book if we're going to have a book that's written by someone and say you know this is a part of the Bible, what would make us say that? What would make us conclude that a book belongs in the Bible? Everything you just said the apocryphal. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> everything the apocryphal had. Very good. That's very true. So let me kind of enumerate the tests. There's really three primary tests: uh, apostolicity, orthodoxy, universality. Okay, apostolicity would mean that the book is either written in the New Testament by an apostle or one of their close associates, and in the Old Testament it would be written by a prophet or someone who was affirmed by the prophets. Uh, so in the Old Testament, you know, Moses was obviously a prophet, Elijah, David. These are people that were received by the people of God as prophets and who did miracles and predicted things with accuracy. I mean, they were clear prophets. And with the New Testament, you have the twelve replaced, obviously Judas replaced by Matthias, and you have Paul and Peter and then Mark. And Luke are not apostles, but they write under the authority of apostles, and so we accept their books. So apostolicity, which means that the Apocrypha fails that test. We don't even know who wrote the Apocrypha, uh, but we know that it wasn't the people who claimed they wrote many of the books, and so they fail that test. The second test uh, is what we call orthodoxy. What, what do you think that means? How early they were accepted as that, that would be and about what they are? Kind of. You're kind of combining two of them together. So she's on it today. Oh, she's on it. So she, she answered two of them in one, one answer. So basically, orthodoxy means that it, it agrees with past doctrine and revelation. So if you've got books that teach salvation by faith alone forever, and then you have another book that says, oh, you can be saved by giving money to the poor, we know that's not the Word of God. Right? So orthodoxy. Then universality. Universality. What do you think we mean by that? Universally accepted. Universally accepted. The whole church universally accepts it because the Spirit of God in the people of God recognizes the Word of God. Okay, the Spirit of God in the people of God recognizes the Word of God. Now there was for certain, you know, for a few centuries, questions about some of the books, and here's why: in the early church, you have apostles and their associates writing letters. And very early, the church is using these letters, circulating the letters, reading them in their worship services. And there was just never really any reason to doubt the canon. So they never really thought much about it in the first few centuries. But then arose heretics like Marcion. Does anyone know who Marcion is? Have you ever heard uh, the idea that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament? You heard that? God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. God of the New Testament is a God of love. Marcion was the first guy who really popularized that idea. He taught that God the Father of the New Testament is not the same God as Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so he ended up kind of ripping up different books. He, he would like take chunks of Luke. Uh, he, he rejected um, much of the New Testament. Like all the writings of Peter were rejected. So he, he actually created his own canon, a truncated canon, an incomplete canon. And uh, then the church had to think, okay, what really does belong in the Bible? That question came up, and so over several centuries, the church had councils, and eventually, by the fourth century, the church universally agreed that the 66 books of the Protestant Bible are the Word of God. And then later, at the Council of Trent in the 1500s, the Catholic Church officially recognized the Apocrypha. They were late to the show, though. So the Bible is the Word of God. That's the canon. 
66 books. Alright, let's go to paragraph, paragraph 4. We're really moving along today. Paragraph 4, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see now, we, we've looked at the, this, the, uh, the inspiration of Scripture. We've talked about uh, the necessity of Scripture. We've talked about the extent of Scripture. But now, we're going to see the authority of Scripture. The authority. Paragraph 4. The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates belief in them. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church, but on God, the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the Scriptures are to be received because they are the Word of God. So why should we believe the Bible? Where does the Bible get its authority from? God. God. Right? doesn't get its authority from a church, does it? doesn't get its authority from me and you. The Bible is inherently authoritative because it is the Word of God. And so when we go out even on the streets and we share the Gospel with our, or even with our neighbors or co-workers, they are obligated to believe the Bible. They are under divine obligation to believe the Scripture because the Scripture is the Word of God. Let's look at some of these uh, verses. 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1. And I'll start verse 19. 2 Peter 1 verse 19. Is it before or after John? John? It's right before. Literally right before. First Peter 2. I'm sorry. I'm confusing everybody. It's 2 Peter 1. Second Peter one. Uh, I had the numbers right. I just mixed them up. Second Peter one, verse nineteen. And uh, I'm actually going to start reading in verse seven, verse sixteen, verse sixteen. Peter says, "For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty." So if you're an eyewitness of this, of the events of Jesus' life and ministry, you can have some good degree, a high degree of certainty as to the validity of it, right? I mean, I saw this. I saw Jesus live, saw Him do miracles, I saw Him die, saw Him resurrected. Verse 17, For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. We call that the transfiguration, right? Jesus was on the mountain with three of His apostles. He was transfigured before them. His glory shone. Peter was there. Peter saw that. Verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. What is the prophetic word? What do you think the prophetic word refers to? The Bible, right? The Old Testament. So Peter experienced the glory of Jesus on the mountain, and he said, the Word of God is even more certain than my own experience. The Word of God is even more authoritative than my own experience. Verse 20, he says this, But know this first of all, 
that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What do you think that means? No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. I don't get it. Get to it interpret it differently than you do. Like, it all has the same meaning for everybody, and we don't get to decide that it means one thing for me and something else for everybody else. So we can't do Bible study and ask what this means for me? No. Oh, that's not fair. So, and that was true not only for us, that was even true of the original recipients of the Word of God. Peter didn't get revelation, and then he couldn't just go and interpret it however he wanted and write whatever he wanted, right? Peter received revelation from God. Verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's where the Scripture gets its authority. The Holy Spirit superintended the writing process, so they wrote exactly what He wanted them to write, and the final product is the inspired Word of God. And that's also why if you were a prophet and you predicted something was going to happen, and it didn't happen. That's why they were commanded to stone you to death. Right. Because you were a liar. You weren't actually a prophet. Man, imagine if we applied that today. It'd be a, John, probably be a lot less. <laughs> be a lot less false prophets, wouldn't it? All right. So paragraph four essentially states that the authority of the scripture is found in the author, God. But now go to paragraph five. Paragraph five. You can look up some of these other references on your own. We've already looked up a few of them. Paragraph 5 says, The testimony of the church of God may stir and persuade us to adopt a high and reverent respect for the Holy Scriptures. Moreover, the heaviness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of the style, the harmony of all the parts, the central focus on giving all glory to God, the full revelation of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable qualities and complete perfections all provide abundant evidence that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures comes from the eternal work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. So the confession says that the testimony of the church may persuade us to have a high view of the Bible. Right? So you come to church, you hear the preacher talking about the Word of God, the Bible is the Word of God, maybe that will convince you, but you shouldn't ultimately believe the Bible is the Word of God because of me, or because of the church, but because it is the Word of God. The author is God, the author is trustworthy. So, hopefully you can see here that the confession is, at any place it can be, anti-Roman Catholic. At every place. Because the Roman Catholic Church, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach about the Bible? What, what do they teach about the authority of the Bible? Who created the Bible according to Roman Catholics? The Catholics. The Catholic Church. They say they created the Bible. They're the ones that did it. So they think the church gave birth to the Bible. In reality, the Bible gave birth to the church. God determines this canon. God creates the Scripture. The church simply recognizes the Scripture. God's the one that creates it. And so, the Bible is not authoritative because the Roman Catholic Church says it is. The Bible is authoritative because the author is truth itself and has all authority in heaven and earth. And therefore, when he speaks, he speaks with absolute authority. Which means that any topic that the Bible touches on speaks with the final word. How many genders are there? There's two. There's two. That's what the Bible recognizes. The Bible is the authority, not you, not your opinion, not your preference. The Bible, right? How many gods are there? There's one, because the Bible says so, and what the Bible says 
It's true. How are we saved? Faith and works? No. no. Faith, alone. faith alone. Why? Because the Bible says so. The Bible is the authoritative Word of God. But then it goes on, the confession goes on and says that there are secondary evidences that can convince us that the Bible is the Word of God. So the ultimate reason you should believe the Bible is because it is the Word of God. But then, there are some evidences that demonstrate it to be the Word of God. What, what are some proofs? What are, if someone was to come up to you, and let's just say they were an agnostic, and say, you know, I really, you know I'm really not sure about the Bible. Uh, is it the Word of God? Can you show me that it's the Word of God? Why do you believe it's the Word of God? What would you say? Why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? What are some, some of the, in the words of the confession, the incomparable qualities that we could point to that prove the Bible to be the Word of God? When you compare Scripture to Scripture, it backs itself up. So the Bible's consistent, right? What are some of the, what's an objection we hear often? The Bible contradicts itself, right? Is that true? No. No. In fact, if you ask them for a contradiction, usually they can't give you one because they're just kind of echoing what they read off the internet. And they never read the Bible themselves. But if they can point you to a supposed contradiction, it's very easy to show them that it's not a contradiction. Very easy. What are some other evidences that the Bible is the Word of God? All the prophecies that were given, with the except, exception of like one or two, because Christ hasn't returned to the earth right. yet, but all the other prophecies that were given have been fulfilled. Right. And not only that, they were written by 66 different people in three different languages over the span of... 1,500 years. 1,500 years. And it has one continu continuous theme from beginning to end. Very good. What is the theme of the whole Bible? Christ. Christ. Right? The theme of the whole Bible, you could say this way, is the redemption of man through the person and work of Jesus Christ for the glory of the triune God in the establishment of His kingdom. The whole Bible is about that. Everything. God establishes His kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2. The evil one revolts and even encourages and tempts God's subjects to revolt against His kingdom. And the whole rest of the story is about God redeeming a people through Christ to bring subjects into His kingdom, which will find its final and eternal expression in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's a big story about God's redeeming of His people for His glory. Every book, even the Song of Solomon, or even the R-rated Song of Solomon, is about Christ and His church, ultimately. That's what it ultimately points to. The passion that Christ has for the church and that the church should have for her bridegroom. So that's a very good one. Um, so the unity of the Bible, the continuity of the Bible, the consistency of the Bible. Uh, there, there's also scientific facts in the Bible that are just so transcendent, no one could have guessed these things without God telling them it was the case. What are, at one point, like in George Washington's era, I believe it was, they believed that if you had an infection, yeah. that bloodletting was going to heal you and cure you of that infection, but the Bible says that blood is the life. Right. So for years, people would bleed themselves to cure themselves of sicknesses, and they'd die, they'd bleed to death. But the Bible says the life is in the blood. Just listen to the Bible, and you never would bleed yourself to death, right? What about washing hands? What did people used to do in the older days? How did they wash their hands? I mean, I think they just didn't. <laughs> Some of them didn't. That's true. I have people in my house well, that do that. That's still true. 
<laughs> but a lot of times they would have a bowl of water and you would just come and dip your hands in it and wash your hands. What's wrong with that? <clears throat> well, you're all sharing that same water. It's not going to change every time. Right. You're not really cleaning anything. But Sean, I've never seen germs. I don't believe in that. Right. Okay, well, you've never <laughs> seen God either. So does that exactly. mean Exactly. We just refuted the atheist again, right? So they would do that and they would spread germs. But the Bible tells us to wash our hands under running water. That makes sense. That's what we do today. God's pretty smart, isn't it? Uh, God knew about germs even before modern science knew about germs. And um, it says that he hung all the planets. And at one point, people believed that like everything was all connected or something. And that the flat earthers believe right. that the, flat, the earth is flat. Now, hey, Sean, don't step on people's toes now. I will stomp all over people's toes. Yeah, so, so obviously we understand, I guess depending on what can be fall into, that the earth's around... Uh, that's consistent with the Bible. The Bible says God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth in Isaiah 40. Uh, the idea of an, a rotating earth. Uh, Jesus says when He comes back, some are going to be working, some are going to be sleeping. How do you get that? How do you get night and day? Because there's a rotating earth. It's night on one side of the earth, it's daytime on the other side of the earth. How did the Bible know that? Well, the Bible is written by God. Uh, go to Job 26. Here's my favorite one. Job 26. My favorite scientific fact in the Bible that just blows me away is this verse right here. Job 26, verse 7. Keep in mind that the book of Job was probably the first book of the Bible ever written. Ever written. Written by Job before the time of Moses, most theologians think. And so this was written very, very, I mean, you know, very long ago. And in Job 20, Job 26, 7, we read this. He, that is God, God stretches out the north over empty space. So this is the, the context. We have empty space. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Wow, that's exactly right, isn't it? What did the ancients believe? Did the ancients believe that the earth had a free float in outer space? No, they thought that it sat on a turtle. What's under the turtle? Oh, a titan. What's under the titan? A rock. What's under the rock? A pool of water. It's just an infinite regress. It just keeps going and going. I mean, it's outlandish. But when you read the Bible, you don't find the, the foolish uh, scientific knowledge of the Mesopotamian world. You find things like the earth hangs on nothing. What are, where did the author of Job get that? He got it from God. Divinely inspired. Can I point something out? Yeah. Okay, so in mine, what did you just read? Job 26, 7. Okay, so it has a cross-reference to Job 9, 8. And so I went there. But then I also read verse 9. And I don't know why I've never seen this before, because I've read this book multiple times. And it just dawned on me that, like, yeah, he named every star by name. He's got a name for every star in the universe and in the sky or whatever. Right. But there's specific names for constellations that right. we have, and they're in the Bible. Right. Sorry, it's not, it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? The scientific accuracy. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. We understand the Bible's written in very poetic language in some parts. And so you are going to read things like, you know, God you know, set up the pillars of the earth, and obviously the earth isn't hanging on, sitting on pillars. It hangs on nothing, like Job 26.7 says. It's poetic language. Uh, so when the Bible does speak scientifically, it always speaks with absolute precision and accuracy. Let me give you one more. There's one more. How many stars did people believe existed in 1611? What was the common belief? Does anyone know? 
How many stars are there? Can't count. No one knows, right? I mean, you lose perspective. I mean, scientists... Isn't that right in the Bible? Exactly. But you can't count them somehow. I don't know. Can't count the stars like the prophet. I think it's in Isaiah. You can't count the stars. What does God tell Abraham? I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the what? Stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Can you count the sand on the seashore? You can, you're a bad man, right? Of course you can. Can you count the stars in the heavens according to the Bible? No. No. Now, modern... Modern... uh, Scientists, the, the intellectuals of the day, it just in 1611, thought you could. The common belief in 1611 is that there was about 1,100 stars in the sky. Uh, you know, and every now and then somebody would look up and count them again and go, you know, we're a little wrong. There's like 1,200 stars in the sky. Then in 1611, Galileo invented the telescope. He looked up into the heavens and he said, guys, we're way off. We can't count them. The stars, like the Bible said, thousands of years ago is innumer- are innumerable. How did the author of the Bible know that? God God created the stars. So what you find then is that the Bible's not catching up with science. It's the other way around. Science is slowly catching up with the Bible. If we would just believe what the Word of God said all along and engage in scientific inquiry with a biblical worldview, then we would do it right. The Bible is the Word of God. And we could look at many other examples. But the Bible, when you again, when you read it, you don't find the scientific foolishness of Mesopotamia. You find things that we now believe today through the scientific advancements of our culture because the Bible is God's Word. Uh, so paragraph 5, look at the end of paragraph 5 there. <clears throat> so kind of three statements I want you to see here. Number one, the Bible is authoritative because it is written by God. Number two, there are evidences that can lead us to believe that. Number three, the only way we'll ever believe that is by the work of the Spirit. Watch this. Toward the end of that paragraph, you see the word, even so. Even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. In other words, in other words, even though the Bible is the Word of God and thus carries inherent authority, and even though there are evidences that could convince us of that, the only way we'll ever believe that is if God enables us to believe that. Does the natural person believe the Bible is the Word of God? No. no. Is the problem that the natural person has, is it an evidence problem? No. Is it an intellectual problem? No. Are they just stupid? No. What's the problem? Sin. It's a heart problem. It's a spiritual problem. People love sin, hate God, and suppress the truth. And we'll talk more about that next week. But if anyone's going to believe the Bible... They need a new heart by the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, pointing to scientific evidence and pointing to you know, scientific facts in the Bible isn't going to do that. What's going to cause the unbeliever to be converted? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. What does He do that through? The Gospel. So ultimately, pointing people to scientific facts isn't enough. We need to point them to the Gospel, call them to repent and trust that God will open their hearts and give them faith. So that's where our hope is at. It's because scientific fact isn't And they do that because they hate Him and love their sin. Any final thoughts, questions, or comments on what we've discussed this morning? Is everybody with me? This is, this is tough stuff. This is very technical language. But uh, we'll be through it in about a year and a half and then we can move on to something more practical. You want to know something? What do I need to know? You know how agitated I get? My friends are like, calm down, Caitlin. 
They're like, I believe in science, you believe in the Bible. I'm like, you want to know something? We just concluded it's not because they're stupid, right? They're fools. Not intellectually, but spiritually. What would you say? I said without the Bible, there is no science. That's right. You can't even account for science without the Bible, right? Because you can't get laws of logic and uniformity in nature without God as the source of those things. Very good. All right, let's close in prayer, and then you'll get a short break. And we'll be back worshiping the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for, for the truth that You've given us in the Scripture. Thank You for faithful men of old who've studied the Word of God hard, with hard labor and have formulated wonderful confessions such as the one we have at our church. And uh, we're glad to study it and just use it as a stimulation to get us into the Word of God and thinking about important theological, biblical truths. And Father, it is our desire to have a greater, stronger grasp of these things so that we can love You more, know You more, and be more faithful in our defense of the truth. And we're thankful that Your Word carries with it authority. We're thankful that it proves itself to be authoritative and that the Spirit of God has bore witness in our heart with the Word, enabling us to believe it. Help us now to be faithful to tell others about it. Bless our worship this morning. Do all these things for Your glory. Amen.